Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey, the Behind the Knife listeners, I am Michael Vu, and I'll be joining Shreya Gupta on today's episode. But before we start, just wanted to give you guys an update on two exciting upcoming releases that we have for you. First of all, we've just added another video to our YouTube procedure series, and this time we did a comprehensive tutorial on how to use Reboa. If you're not familiar, Reboa stands for Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta, and it's a minimally invasive technique to occlude the descending aorta in life-threatening massive hemorrhage cases. So please check that out. Uh, I think it's a good video. You guys have been incredible for our viewership for this video series. I mean, our video on Central Lines has more than like 300,000 views over just three months, and the trajectory is exponential right now. So, so that's just crazy, and it means a lot to us. Second, Absite season is coming up, and we are releasing the second edition of our Absite companion book in two weeks. The feedback we've gotten from the first edition has been insane. I mean, more purchases than we frankly thought we'd ever get. The second edition will come with some new formatting changes that makes the book far more readable and consistent. It comes with countless edits and updates that correct some errata or outdated material. There's a new biostats chapter that is included directly in the book itself, and it will come with full-color illustrations that I think really help solidify some of the more challenging pieces of knowledge that we're expected to know. The biggest complaint by far from the first edition was that it was available only as an ebook. Well, now it is available in print as well, the second edition. So in a couple weeks, that'll be available for purchase on Amazon. Just look up Behind the Knife Ab Site Companion, uh, and we hope to see you on the list of places that we need to mail a book. Uh, so with all that out of the way, I turn it over to Shreya. Welcome to our continued uh, series on discussion of landmark papers from uh, SSL. Today, our topic of discussion is neuroendocrine tumor with liver metastases. It is our great honor and privilege to have the world expert and the president of SSO, Dr. James Howe here, along with Dr. Alexandra Ganji to discuss this topic. Dr. James Howe uh, did his medical school from University of Vermont, residency at Barnes Hospital, followed by his surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He is currently at University of Iowa, where he's the director of surgical oncology department, as well as the director of the neuroendocrine cancer clinic. Like I said, he's current president of the Society of Surgical Oncology. Thank you so much for being here and uh, a special thank you to Dr. Howe for helping us uh, collaborate with SSO for this uh, amazing series. Pleasure to be here, Shreya. Also, uh, our second guest tonight is Dr. Alexandra Ganji. Dr. Ganji is a surgical oncologist out in Cedar sinai uh, She did her medical school from Drexel in Philadelphia, residency at Cedar sinai and her surgical oncology from Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. She is currently the assistant professor with a focus on GI and HPB oncology. Thank you so much, Dr. Ganji, for taking time and being on our podcast this evening. Thank you, Shreya, for the opportunity. The landmark series that we are uh, discussing tonight is, like I said, neuroendocrine tumor with focus on liver metastases. 
That's right. Uh, and although this is a rare and often indolent tumor, liver mets uh, are a negative predictor of survival, and the mets themselves are difficult to manage clinically. With the advances in the medical management, surgical management has also been changing, for, um, which makes the management of these patients um, quite complex. So in discussion today, we will start off with Dr. Howe. We would like a brief introduction on the key tenets of neuroendocrine tumors. Especially, I would like to focus on uh, uh, beginning to focus on the change in nomenclature uh, from what it used to be called as carcinoids to now the change in um, uh, the nomenclature to neuroendocrine followed by whatever organ system it originates um, from. Um, so could you give us... Uh, you know, just an introduction to uh, neuroendocrine tumors and why in particular are liver metastases um, uh, a topic of discussion? Well, there are neuroendocrine cells throughout the body. Um, but, you know, initially there was a, a gentleman named Sigrid Overdorfer in 1907 who identified six patients with ileal tumors that looked sort of like carcinomas, but they weren't. They were a little different. They were distinct. And so he gave them the name carcinoid, which means carcinoma-like. And then gradually that term, which was fairly descriptive of ileal tumors, which has also been applied to a variety of other tumors, say tumors of the bronchus. Some would even call pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors carcinoids, at least for some time. But eventually that gave gave way to the nomenclature neuroendocrine tumor, which means cells that are derived from, well, in the gut of the enterochromaffin cells, in the pancreas from the islet cells. And these are cells that normally make hormones and they give, dis they give rise to uh, a distinct syndrome, at least when they're in the small bowel and especially when they're liver metastases where people through hormonal overproduction, usually of serotonin and histamine and calicrine and, and other hormones can give rise to uh, symptoms of diarrhea, uh, flushing, and wheezing. Um, so they've gradually been more accurately called neuroendocrine tumors from wherever site they originated. So a carcinoid used to mean a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor, and that's what we call it now, a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor instead of carcinoid. Um, the, these tumors tend to be relatively slow growing. Uh, for example, when they originate in the small bowel, they can be very small, but early on they may give rise to metastases, either to lymph nodes uh, or to the liver or both. Um, Often they're not visible on CT scan, but you may see the telltale sign of mesenteric lymph node enlargement nearby. Um, and many people will present with metastases. So although they're slow growing, they often present at an advanced stage. What tells you that the neuroendocrine tumor is advanced or not advanced? Um, when I get the pathology report, what should I be looking at to tell me what the behavior of the tumor is likely to be? Yeah, when you when you look at the individual tumors, there are a couple really important things to to uh, look at on a pathology report of a biopsy, and one is its degree of differentiation. They tend to be well differentiated 
or poorly differentiated. And that's really important. And I'll get back to that in one second. But the other thing is the grade. And they can be grade one, two, or three. And that's defined by either the KI67 index, which is kind of a measure of cell proliferation or cell division, or the mitotic index. And if the KI67 is less than 3%, it's considered grade one. If it's three to 20, it's considered grade two. And if it's over 20, it's considered grade three. Grade one and two well-differentiated tumors generally are what I mentioned earlier. They're slow growing, um, whereas grade three tend to be very quickly growing, especially if they're poorly differentiated. And they uh, actually have a very different biology than the grade one and grade two tumors. So it's really important to, to kind of uh, determine that from any biopsy samples so that you know whether the, it's amenable to surgery. And surgery is really better reserved for the grade one and two tumors and not so much for the grade three tumors. Do you know endocrine tumors uh, over the course of time, um, um, say like someone got diagnosed, they are at, uh, you know, like moderate grade and differentiation uh, stage and um, they've been getting, receiving therapy. Um, and does the grade and differentiation like uh, most always worsen even after um, a therapy or do you see like the, if, if there is recurrence, there's like stable um, the 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 grade um, in uh, differentiation tends to stay the same. Well, we I think we see both in some patients. Um, their stability and their <clears throat> uh, primary disease, whether they had synchronous metastatic disease or not, uh, and if they have recurrence, sometimes it'll remain well differentiated with a low mitotic rate and KI67 index. Um, and then there's other patients in whom there's tremendous heterogeneity within their primary tumor and um, metastatic tumor sites. Uh, one thing we don't frequently see, we don't see well-differentiated tumors turn into poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. Um, but even in patients who have heterogeneity, you'll typically see variations in KI67 and mitotic index. Um, so one area that we're trying to study um, is looking at heterogeneity of the primary tumor, uh, liver metastases, and um, the lymph node and relationship of why there's variation within the tumor microenvironment or if it's a primary tumor specific difference, um, which I find interesting, but I think you see both. Dr. Halbus has more experience, so I think he can give you a better answer. But Well, no, that's a great answer, but I think there there is a small subset of people who will turn into these uh, poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas, and your first clue is like you've been falling for years and they just have a few metastases and all of a sudden things explode in the liver. And when you see a significant change, uh, that's pretty unusual for neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, and so that's when you better do a biopsy. And if you get back that it's high grade, then your treatment algorithms change to, to chemotherapy. I think that's a great stepping point to discussing surgery, which is the first major topic of your review paper. So, Dr. Ganji, when discussing uh, or considering surgery for neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases, what is the goal of surgery, both in terms of what are you trying to accomplish intraoperatively and what are you trying to accomplish for the patient's longevity and quality of life? I think it's important to note that once a patient uh, develops neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases, there is a high chance that they're going to have recurrence in the liver, regardless of the, the treatment that's undertaken. 
Um, as Dr. Howe mentioned, uh, a majority of these patients who have neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases may have symptoms of carcinoid syndrome, um, which as he mentioned, include facial flushing, diarrhea, and occasionally wheezing. So before we had a somatostatin analog uh, therapy, really the only way to control disease and control symptoms was to proceed with surgical debulking. And so some of the first reports we have are of debulking procedures that were done before uh, the advent of somatostatin analog therapy. And the first one was really in the late 1970s um, where patients were taken to the operating room and had about 95% of their liver tumors debulked. And once 95% of the tumors were debulked, they found that there was good correlation with symptom relief and disease control in this subset of patients. Um, based on some of that literature, there were then additional studies that reported, again, uh, good disease control when 90% debulking was undertaken. Um, so based on these studies, it was felt that at least 90% debulking was required to achieve adequate symptom control in these patients. Um, and subsequently, there are you know, additional studies that found not only did you have good disease control with 90% debulking, but you had that um, symptom and disease control for a period of about 19 months or so. Um, and then once somatostatin analog therapy became available, we again looked at some of these um, same thresholds, um, but it wasn't really until 2008 until a lower debulking threshold was entertained. Um, and this was a, a retrospective study that looked at patients who had primary um, small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, pancreatic tumors were not included, um, who had had surgery for their primary tumors nodal metastases and also liver lesions when feasible. Um, and in this study, they found that 70% debulking or more was actually adequate for palliation of symptoms. And that, you know, even if you couldn't debulk 90%, if you could debulk at least 70% of the disease, that that was actually adequate um, for disease control and, and improvement in progression-free survival. So since then, there have been numerous studies that have looked at a variety of thresholds, um, one of which compared uh, debulking thresholds of 70 to 89 percent, 90 to 99 percent, and 100 percent, and found that when these groups were compared, um, patients were obviously well matched. There was essentially no difference in liver progression, uh, free survival, or disease-specific survival in these patients. And then Dr. Howe recently had a paper where they evaluated approximately 200 patients with gastroenteropancreatic nets who had surgical cytoreduction, meaning primary tumor resection was also included at the time. And they divided patients into three groups based on the number of liver lesions that they treated. Um, so patients who had one to five lesions, six to 10 or more than 10. And again, these patients, patient groups were well matched, but not surprisingly, uh, the patients who had 10 or more liver metastases were more frequently on somatostatin analog therapy. Um, and when they looked at all patients overall, the debulking achieved was about 79%. But what they did is then they broke it down further and looked at outcomes based on less than 70% debulking of the liver and compared it to 70 to 90% debulking and then greater than 90% debulking. And what they found was that overall survival was obviously better if you had debulked at least 70%, but didn't make a difference between you know, 70%, 80%, or 90%. Um, but when looking at progression-free survival specifically, 
um, there was better progression-free survival in patients who had greater than 90% debulking performed. So, you know, the current management paradigm is, you know, if you could debulk more than 70% of disease, then that is felt to be adequate and portends a uh, benefit um, for these patients. But certainly if you can debulk more, then you would, and that likely provides a better progression-free survival benefit. In follow-up to that question, are you seeing these patients um, who um, have a pretty high burden of liver disease uh, from their neuroendocrine tumor? Uh, is there any role in neoadjuvant um, therapy at all? And if so, how does that change the surgical management of um, neuroendocrine uh, tumor liver metastases? Um, so neoadjuvant therapy for neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases is not similar to what neoadjuvant therapy would be for um, potentially other, you know, adenocarcinomas like colorectal cancer, things of that variety that we frequently think of. Uh, one thing to consider is obviously the primary site of the tumor. So whether it's pancreatic or small bowel, um, currently there's no uh, good data to support the use of neoadjuvant systemic therapy for small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, whether they're metastatic or not outside of somatostatin analog therapy. Um, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, again, it, you know, depends on the specific um, patient and the presentation, um, the degree of metastases. Um, so, you know, you can have oligometastatic disease to the liver in a, you know, distal pancreatic lesion. Uh, you won't necessarily always proceed with neoadjuvant therapy if the patient is a upfront surgical candidate. So, uh, the paradigm is a little bit different and needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question that you're asking, but there's no perfect algorithm in terms of where neoadjuvant therapy fits. So primary tumor and burden of disease in the liver and also extrahepatically are kind of important criteria in determining the utility of neoadjuvant therapy for these patients. And I would I would just add that, you know, one of the reasons that we don't use it very much is it's not very effective, especially in small bowel tumors, as Dr. Ganji was mentioning. But there is a new uh, new uh, chemotherapy for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, capecitabine and temozolomide, that has been shown to be pretty good. And in, a, in many situations with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, we may choose to treat those patients with, with those agents to see if we can get shrinkage because uh, it can happen, especially in situations that look pretty bad initially. You do devote the last part of your section on surgical therapies to the idea of liver transplantation. How commonly have you encountered a patient that needs liver transplantation for this indication? What what sort of patient would qualify for this? Um, So the the current recommendation for uh, transplantation for patients with liver metastases um, based on ENETs and Milan criteria are potentially patients who would be good candidates for debulking um, surgery. So realistically, we're looking at patients who have uh, less than 50% um, liver replacement, uh, well-differentiated tumors, um, no extrahepatic disease, six-month disease-free intervals, and young age, uh, specifically less than 55. So, you know, based on those criteria, these these are potentially patients who would be good candidates for upfront cytoreductive surgery. Um, so I think you always have to consider organ allocation um, in this setting. Frequently, patients who have, you know, innumerable liver metastases or, you know, complete 
uh, replacement of their liver by these criteria would not really qualify for transplant. So I think that's an important piece to keep in mind. And we, you know, we've used it at our institution, but very, very, very selectively. And, you know, I, I think uh, I would have to look back and see when the last liver transplant for a neuroendocrine tumor was performed, but it, it wasn't in the recent past. Are there any uh, randomized controlled trials on surgical management for um, uh, neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases that are in pipeline that um, uh, that we should be looking forward to? No, it's a hard thing to randomize. Um, for a couple of reasons. None One that is, I'm aware uh, of, Dr. Howe. <laughs> no, the, the best other available therapy would be just somatostatin analogs, the most reliable, you know, with the exception of capecitabine temozolomide, like we mentioned. Um, a lot of patients will not agree to be randomized if they, you know, have cytoreducible disease. Um, it would take a large number of patients to uh, prove anything. Uh, and the the uh, amount of disease is often very um, could be very different between groups. So it's it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, it, it'd be a great trial to do, but uh, I just can't see it really being pulled off anytime in the near future. I think that's one of the uh, you know the complexity of this uh, of this uh, disease process, and I think that's what makes it so um, challenging to uh, manage these patients is because of that um, that, that there are no um, good alternatives. However, in uh, recently in the last would you say decade or so, I, I feel like there are various other alternatives that are on the horizon. And at this point, I would like to change our focus to uh, discussing the next topic in the paper that was uh, liver-directed therapies, um, in particular, ablative therapy versus radioembolization um, and transarterial chemoembolization. Could you highlight um, some of the specifics of um, uh, what these therapies are and um, how one would go about picking one versus the other when it comes to uh, doing the management of these liver metastases? Um, Sure. Um, So you mentioned ablative therapy. Ablative therapy generally means treating liver lesions with either radiofrequency ablation, microwave ablation, or irreversible electroporation. And I might also add that these techniques are very useful when you're doing open surgery as well. You know, there's been kind of a push in open surgery towards going from large resections to what we call parenchymal sparing procedures, where we try to enucleate or do wedge excisions or do ablations on these lesions because often people have so many lesions. You don't want to remove too much normal liver. Uh, when radiologists do ablative therapy, they'll often only go after one or a few lesions because it's difficult to target these lesions um, in interventional radiology uh, and the patients require general anesthesia for it. Um, but they can be done effectively on one or a few lesions. So that's ablation. Now, embolization can take several different forms. It can be what we call bland embolization, or it could be chemoembolization, or it could be radioembolization. So bland embolization is just in, uh, 
injecting into the hepatic artery uh, spheres, uh, often a resin compound that will block off the arteries, either selectively feeding tumors or to a whole lobe. And chemobilization is when you do the same thing, but you might add some chemotherapy, which can kind of stay there and get to pretty high concentrations. And then radioembolization is when those beads have conjugated yttrium-90 spheres onto them, which then sit in the liver and radiate the tumors. Um, pretty much there's no clear difference between whether bland embolization is any better or worse than uh, chemoembolization. And, you know, what you choose really depends on the center that you're at. Um, radioembolization, uh, it's, it's also not clear whether that is better than bland or chemoembolization. Different centers tend to use one form versus another. One of the disadvantages of doing radioembolization is that another therapy that's become very popular because of its utility is to give uh, what's called peptide receptor radiotherapy to patients. And that takes advantage of uh, the fact that there are somatostatin receptors on the cell. And by giving a somatostatin analog with another radioactive agent like lutetium-177, you can get fairly tumor-specific effects. If somebody's had radioembolization, they've already received radiation to the liver, and some would argue that giving PRRT after radioembolization increases the risk of uh, cirrhosis. Some would argue that that's not the case, and that's still an area of contention. So those are some of the factors that people will use to determine which of those embolization strategies, strategies they'll use uh, uh, in patients. We use those strategies often when there's bulky liver disease that we don't think we can do cytoreduction on, or if somebody has significant hormonal symptoms and you need quick relief of symptoms, that's uh, less invasive than surgery clearly with, uh, with less risk, although there is risk as the liver replacement exceeds 70%, then people are at significant risk for liver failure. But um, those are also patients who won't do well with surgery. I'd like to switch gears and talk about the strictly medical therapies now. The old standby that uh, we've learned since medical school has been somatostatin analogs. So, Dr. Ganji, perhaps you can start there and tell us the history uh, and literature surrounding octreotide and its similar cousins. Um, so, <laughs> the two studies really that highlight the use of uh, somatostatin analog therapy are the, the PROMID and the clarinet studies. Um, the, for both of these, the primary outcome was progression-free survival. And essentially, uh, the PROMID study evaluated patients with metastatic mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors, so small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, um, and randomized them to receiving um, ocreotide, long-acting ocreotide, 30 uh, milligrams every four weeks uh, versus a placebo drug. Um, and at the time of evaluation, they found that those patients who were receiving acreotide therapy had an improved progression-free survival of 14 months versus six months, so nearly doubling progression-free survival in patients with metastatic mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors. 
Um, the clarinet study was uh, another study looking at the use of lanreotide, um, and this included patients with metastatic enteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, so small bowel and pancreas. Um, and in this group of patients, uh, in this study, patients were either randomized to receiving lanreotide every four weeks versus placebo. Um, and at the time of final analysis, the median progression-free survival was not reached for those patients receiving treatment with lanreotide compared to uh, just 18 months for those patients who were receiving um, placebo treatment, suggesting that there's a progression-free survival benefit um, with the use of lanreotide and acreotide LAR for metastatic midgut and metastatic enteropancreatic nets. Yeah, and I think that takes us to uh, some of the new players on the block and like discussing um, mTOR inhibitors like Everlimus, uh, Sinitinib. Um, could you talk a little bit more about those trials um, that were brought up in the review paper? Sure. So uh, the Radiant 4 study um, essentially looked at the use of Everlimus uh, versus placebo for advanced non-functioning neuroendocrine tumors of the long or gastrointestinal tract. Um, and uh, this was a phase three study. And essentially, patients were randomized to either receiving Everolimus at 10 milligrams daily versus placebo treatment. Um, and uh, about 300 patients or so were in, uh, enrolled. And uh, at time of analysis, there was a significant benefit in patients receiving Everolimus with a 11-month versus about four-month progression-free survival um, benefit. There was also um, a trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the use of uh, sunitinib in patients with advanced pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Um, and sunitinib is a uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor specific for inhibition of uh, vascular endothelial growth factor. This again was a phase three study um, and patients received 37.5 milligrams of uh, sutent versus placebo. And again, there was a benefit in these patients with their progression-free survival of um, 11 months for those treated with sutent versus five months for those treated with um, placebo. Any major side effects that you would like to comment on as far as um Everlimus and sunitinib go? So some of the side effects for sunitinib, um, patients will frequently complain of fatigue, um, diarrhea, occasionally nausea and vomiting. Um, occasionally, um, some patients will develop hypertension um, and uh, skin discoloration, um, sometimes developing somewhat of a yellow hue. Um, very few patients will experience mucositis. It's probably one of the most severe but uh, least common side effects um, that we see. Um, the question I always get asked is, am I going to lose my hair? Uh, and no, <laughs> patients taking Sutent typically do not lose their hair. So now that we have more medical options available for treatment, but still no randomized controlled trials assessing their comparative efficacies, how do you decide what therapies to use and, and in what sequence? What, what does your practice typically look like? Um, so typically for us, we have a neuroendocrine-specific tumor board where, you know, patients are, you know, presented essentially weekly. Um, and we have... Um, 
uh, a mix of different physicians in a typical multidisciplinary fashion. We review each case and, and determine what the best next line of therapy is. Um, as Dr. Howe mentioned, um, for patients with small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, we don't really have very good effective uh, systemic therapy. So those are patients who uh, we may look at uh, surgical resection, PRT, liver-directed therapies, um, and determine what's more useful for that, subpo that subpopulation. For patients with uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, we do have some effective chemotherapeutic agents. Um, so depending on burden of disease, we'll, we'll select which patients should be um, considered for systemic therapy versus alternative therapies, including surgery, liver-directed therapy, or PRT. Um, and then certainly there's, you know, always um, clinical trials. And so in patients who have exhausted treatment options or maybe um, good candidates for available clinical tri trials, that's certainly a point of discussion um, at our weekly tumor boards as well. Dr. Howe, would you like to take us to the next uh, segment of our podcast in discussion of PRRT? Uh, we've been talking about it in our uh, in our episode thus far, but give us um, um, the basics of what PRRT is um, and where um, it, it the its therapy management lies uh, currently in uh, neuroendocrine tumors. Sure. Um, well, PRRT you know, is a, a very targeted treatment. If you imagine radioactive iodine for thyroid cancer, it's a lot like that. You're given a radioactive uh, material that's conjugated to a somatostatin analog that binds specifically to neuroendocrine tumor cells and by residing on the surface or being internalized can cause cell death. Um, Treatment by this method has been around for about two decades in Europe. They start out using indium, which, be, which actually was pretty toxic to the bone marrow. And then the next group in Basel used yttrium, which was somewhat nephrotoxic. And then shortly thereafter, the group at Rotterdam started using lutetium-177, which was even better tolerated. And these groups in Europe amassed you know, the, the group in uh, Rotterdam had about 500 patients. Basel had over 1,000 patients. And we saw a pretty good activity of these agents with response rates of about 20 to 30 percent um, and, you know, longer progression-free survival. So um, those were done in non-randomized kind of phase two type studies. And it wasn't until the NETR1 study was done here in the United States plus multiple sites in Europe um, that a randomized trial was done, which compared giving lutetium-177 in four different doses about eight weeks apart to uh, giving uh, sandostatin or octreotide alone. Um, and it showed a significant improvement in progression-free survival. Um, and so those that treatment is actually one of the most effective for small bowel neuroendocrine tumors uh, that are metastatic. Um, we tend to reserve it for patients that have progressed after surgical cytoreduction uh, and who have been on somatostatin analogs who then develop progression. In other words, as you follow their CT scans, they have new liver lesions or untreated lesions are getting larger and larger. That's when we'll use it because you can't do it that often. You can do these four treatments in one round of therapy, and then you might be able to do it one more time, but um, there is 
the potential of developing mild dysplastic syndrome or leukemia, although the rates of that are pretty low, less than 2%. Um, the, there is just a certain amount of radioactivity that the bone marrow can handle. So we try to put off the treatment of the PRT until we see that cold somatostatin analogs aren't working anymore. Is this getting more, becoming more standard of care or is PRRT therapy still just uh, on trials only? No, in 2017, when this paper on Netter 1 came out, the FDA shortly thereafter approved it. So now this is widely available throughout the United States. Where, where do you see the uh, treatment of neuroendocrine tumor liver metastases trending towards in the future? What, what kinds of practices should we look forward to in 10 to 20 years? Well, you know, there's some exciting new agents for PRT. You know, there's something called alpha therapy. And um, the, the PRT agents that we mentioned earlier were beta emitters, but alpha emitters uh, have greater energy and don't go quite as far. And early trials with, with uh, alpha emitters like lead uh, have shown that uh, there's very good efficacy. Right now, the, too few patients have been treated to know what the toxicity is, but that's one of the things on the horizon that looks very promising. Some uh, neuroendocrine tumors don't express somatostatin receptors on their cell surface, so there are other agents that can target different receptors. Um, some bronchial carcinoids, for example, don't have somatostatin receptors, but they may have a receptor called CXCR4. And there are agents that target that uh, particular receptor. I think the other things that are exciting are the possibility of neoadjuvant therapy. We, you've asked about it earlier, capecitabine temozolomide, certainly for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. And the role of PRRT, prior recital reduction, is being explored in a in a multi-institutional trial as well. And then finally, there's the possibility of personalized medicine now that we can grow spheroids of small bowel neuroendocrine tumors or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors in vitro and then treat them with FDA-approved drugs to see which ones they respond to. So I think those are all bright spots on the near horizon. Excellent. Um, Dr. Ganji, would you like to add to that? And also, do you have any closing remarks of anything that we have not discussed in the podcast thus far that you'd like to highlight? Um, no, I, I think Dr. Howe did an excellent job in covering what's on the horizon and what's exciting. I think, um, as he discussed, just uh, developing a, an evolving algorithm of how to best manage these patients with neuroendocrine tumor metastases and incorporating um, personalization of medicine and current therapies. Um, I think it's an exciting time for us as physicians to be able to offer these multiple different therapies for our patients. And I think we're going to continue to make uh, tremendous progress. So I'm certainly excited to be uh, a young faculty in this space. Well, and as, as Dr. Ganji was saying, I think sequencing of treatments is one of the biggest things that, you know, may be very different in different institutions. And I think it's a question that comes up frequently. What's the best sequence of these therapies? And I don't think we know that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Howe, Dr. Ganji. This was uh, quite an informative uh, uh, episode on something that is not not, not so um, uh, readily discussed in our day-to-day -day general surgery residency um, education. So thank you so much for a very informative um, episode and uh, taking us through this um, um, 
quite a hefty uh, uh, trials and management of uh, neuroendocrine um, liver metastases management. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.